All right, if you want to grab your Bibles, uh, turn to Proverbs chapter 3. I remember when we started this series, I remember thinking, man, we're never going to get to the end of this one. And uh, here we are, (laughs) seven days later, wrapping up our two-week series in Proverbs. It's been great having you. Proverbs 3. And then next week, we're, we're going to kick off about a four-month series uh, going through, primarily through First and Second Samuel, and we're going to be covering the life of David, and it's going to be really cool. Um, we're going to see how the life of David, um, in a lot of ways, uh, it gives us a model for how we anticipate and how we see the, what's called the true and better David, who, of course, is Christ. And so to read through his life and his stories, see the ways that God just just, I mean, the way, he, the way God worked in David's life through all kinds of craziness. Um, this is not somebody that we look at and go, that's the life I want. That's the person I aspire to be. And yet there was all these different ways that, that he was a man, as, as we're told, a man after God's own heart. So we're going to look at the tension between those, those two things. And uh, it's going to be good starting next, next week. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm going to be coughing. You can pray for Melissa and I. We have had this cough now for a month. It, it keeps getting worse with her, so you, you, can, you can pray for her. So I'm, I'm, that's why I'm holding this. I'm trying to get through it. Um, but we started last week uh, in Proverbs 3, and we wanted to look at, at two pieces, um, wisdom in plenty, or, or how do we use wisdom with the blessings that God gives us or the wealth that he blesses us with. And uh, this week we want to look at, at wisdom in our pain, wisdom in our suffering, wisdom in our hardships, Wisdom in our trials. So as we enter the new year, uh, there's, there's probably a couple of big pieces for us. When we look out in the new year, a lot of us are thinking about, hey, what, what's going on with, with, my, with my finances? And am I, am, you know, do, I have, do I have the money I need? Do I, is there a job that I need to get so that I can have the finances that I need? Um, a lot of us are thinking you know, a lot about that as we enter the new year. Am I going to have what I need you know, to provide for myself or for my family if I have a family? And so those thoughts tend to overwhelm and they, they really tend to take over our lives. The other big piece, and there's lots of pieces, but the other big piece that, that we're really thinking a lot about is just our physicality, our health, um, how, how we're doing in terms of, you know, um, the welfare of our, like our, of our physicalness, right? And what comes with that, what comes with being a physical being, what, what, what comes with being a human being in a fallen world um, is that we experience suffering, you know? Um, you guys have all experienced suffering. I mean, from, from somebody who is young, if you're, if you're young here, if you're a kid, and even if you've had those moments where you've had a cold and your throat hurts and your nose is running and you're thinking, well, this is, I, maybe this will get me a day off school, which would be a benefit. Um, but other than that, I really just wish I felt better so that I could kind of get back to doing the things that I want to do. And, you know, as we get older, you know, sometimes those, those sicknesses and those particular kinds of trials, it's not just sickness, but it can be hardships and trials and, and seasons of, of just discomfort where, where everything just seems to go wrong in our lives. And it causes us to ask questions. Not a bad thing, but it causes us to ask questions about God and his goodness. And, <coughs> excuse me, is he somebody who has my best interest in mind? Do, does, he, does he hear me when I'm when I'm pleading before him, when I'm saying, Lord, I'm, I'm experiencing this thing. Can you help me? And then it doesn't seem like any help comes. Like, is he there? Does he, is he, does he have bigger things? Does he have bigger fish to fry? 
Am I big enough in his world, again, somebody who created the entire universe, um, for him to take notice of me? And this is what it feels like when we experience hardships and trials and pain. And so we come to the book of Proverbs, and what Proverbs is, it's a series of instructions. It's a series of, of wise sayings. Remember, we talked about that last week. It's, it's not a magic formula. It's not do this and automatically this will happen. Why is that? Well, because it's, the Proverbs are not a fortune cookie. Uh, the Proverbs were not written by a genie who are going to make all of your three wishes come true if you just recite the magic words, right? That's not what the Proverbs are. The Proverbs are God's grace to us with wisdom and how to live through this life when practiced. Because we live in a fallen world, because we still battle with sin, it means that even when we do the right things, things don't always turn out right, right? Um, but these are general principles for us, and we can receive them as God's grace. And last week we learned about where God's at and what God does when it comes to our finances, and, our, and our, we called it wealth, because that's what the passage told us here in Proverbs 3, verse 9. And we said that, hey, we need to start to let God change our thinking about the fact that we give him our first and we give him our best and that it's an act of trust for us to do that, right? When we looked at Proverbs 3, uh, verse, verse 9, it says, honor the Lord with your wealth. And we learned, we learned that that word honor said, means make, make, make weighty, make the Lord weighty in your life. Uh, don't, don't, make him a, don't make him, don't give him a position of, of lightness, in your life, or, did, or we would say something that is just not really so there so that we can dismiss it so easily, right? And so the, the, the writer of Proverbs here tells us, don't do that. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your, of your produce and your barns will be filled with plenty and your, your vats will be bursting with wine. And that, again, not a formula to say that when you give God your first and your best and all of a sudden now we, we all own, you know, third houses on the Caribbean. That's not what it's saying. It's actually saying that when the Lord blesses you with wealth, it gives you more to give back. It gives you more to bless your neighbors with. It gives you more to bless the Lord with. So we understand that through the lens of all of scripture, if we just read that on its own and it's like, man, I'm giving all this money and nothing's coming. Well, what happens then is we get mad at the TV preacher who tells us that that's the formula for when we give, we get all this in return. That's not the point of giving. It, what Proverbs is telling us here. So now we move into the second part of these series of passages in verse 11. And it, it tells us something about the Lord's discipline or when we feel the Lord's correction in our life or when we experience seasons of testing and refinement and, and hardships. And so again, before we dive into that, we wanna remember that Proverbs are, it's practical help from God for weak people who stumble through daily life. That's what Ray Ortland, that's how he described the Proverbs. I loved that. And this is how we would describe wisdom, okay? Wisdom would be the skill to survive and thrive by living in accordance with the order that God has established in his world. And so that's what we're thinking of here when we read Proverbs and we're given this instruction. Um, if you were old enough, uh, about 20, I think it was about 20 years, well, 20-ish years ago, there was this, there was this television program that kind of took the world by storm. It was called Lost. And if you guys watched Lost, yeah, it was a whole thing. It became this whole culture. And um, <clears throat> Lost really simply was the story of uh, this plane that crashed on this remote island. And there were all these survivors. Everybody like survived the crash for the most part. And all of these crazy magical things started happening on the island. 
And whatever they did, they just, all they wanted to do was get off the island. They just, they wanted to get just back home. They wanted to get to their loved ones. They wanted to get through this really difficult season that they were spending trying to survive on this island. And no matter what they did, they, they couldn't get off the island. And it was just, it was a crazy show. And, um, but I remember, um, and I think it was right after I moved here, um, it was in the middle of the last season, and uh, they, they were going to show like the finale of Lost. And um, man, I was so excited. Um, there were a lot, you know, we were having Lost parties, and everybody was like, oh my gosh, we're, we're finally going to find out the secret. Like, what was all of this for? What was all this supernatural stuff that's going on? And... Um, it turned out to be, I think, uh, one of the worst series finales <laughs> in the history of television um, because it told you nothing, right? You, you were more confused after the finale. And then what was so interesting is that I, you know, a couple of years later, when you read about the creators of Lost and you read, you know, you read these interviews with them, and um, they just said, man, we were just making it up literally every week. We had no idea what we were doing. We, had, we thought we were going to just get one season. It was going to get canceled. It was too weird of a show. The thing goes all these seasons, and they're faced with having to, like, create a world that they had no idea how to create. Here's my point, um, is that the end of Lost was a mystery. Lost was a mystery. The TV show was based around a mystery. But you were left feeling lost at the end of Lost, right? That's how it feels when we find ourselves in seasons of testing, when we find ourselves in seasons of discipline and pain and refining in the Christian life, we just feel kind of lost a lot of times. We wonder or assume all kinds of things about God, right? And it's natural for us to feel that way. And in fact, when we read scripture, we realize that all kinds of women and men in scripture, they feel like we did about it, right? They feel like God must be angry or they feel like, uh, man, I must deserve the hardship that I have coming or the sickness that I have coming. Or we're angry because we feel like we don't deserve what's happening to us. Come on. Why is this happening to me? What have I done? Right? We say that before the Lord. A lot of times we might even feel like God is just, man, he, he's having a bad day or a bad week or a bad year. And he's, he's just taking it out on us. Like what's going on? Um, maybe he's just getting the last laugh, you know? So again, when we go through times of trial and discipline from the Lord, it, it, it shows something about our view of the Lord. It's very interesting. We should pay attention to that. We wonder if God has literally maybe just forgotten about us. Like again, like I said a few minutes ago, he's so big, you know? Is my life, my tiny life in this world, you know, my place in this massive world with all these people, does he really, does he really, really care about it? So how does wisdom help us in times like this? This is what we're gonna learn as we look at uh, Proverbs 3, verse 11. I'm just gonna read 11 and 12. That's our passage for today. And it says this, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof for the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father, the son, in whom he delights. We read it again because two verses is so short, I feel like I'm, I just skipped something. Um, it says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father, the son, in whom he delights. So what we're going to find here in these four verses is that wisdom does two things for us when we're experiencing pain, discipline, refinement, hardships, 
First off, wisdom leads us to fatherly love. It leads us to fatherly love. And then secondly, wisdom calls us to faithfully wait on that same father who loves us. So let's look at wisdom leading us to fatherly love. And now these words, they're acknowledging something for us right here, okay? They're acknowledging an important, but I would say so, sobering truth. It's an important truth. It's a sobering truth about the Christian life, which is that God disciplines his children. It says he reproves those that he loves. It means that God corrects us. God corrects us. He doesn't allow us to persist in wrong thinking. He doesn't allow us to persist in bad behaviors. He just doesn't allow us to keep going on down that path. He pulls us back. He intervenes. He gets involved. He gets invested in our life. That's what we're getting here from this, song, this proverb. He doesn't allow us to persist in those things that aren't good for us. His will for us is that our thinking and our actions would progressively resemble Jesus more and more and more. Paul mentions this in 1 Thessalonians 4.3 when he says, God's will for your life is your sanctification. Is this, this act of this cooperative act between you and the Holy Spirit where you know the things to do that are right and you work hard at doing those things, knowing that the Holy Spirit is helping you do those things and knowing that when you don't do those things, you have a heavenly father who is going to forgive you for those things, right? But God's will for your life is sanctification. So if that's true, and gosh darn it, we believe it's true, then it means that God will test you so that your faith is found to be genuine, like Peter tells us in, in uh, 1 Peter 1.7. So when it's happening to us, here's the thing. When, when these kinds of disciplines or trials or tests, when life is not going the way that we want it to go, um, gosh, it can feel so exclusive. That's what's so hard about it, right? It can feel so exclusive, like God has chosen us to be like the, the sole members of his genuine faith club, right? Like I'm the president, CEO, CFO. You know, when, when we're in our pain, it's almost like we don't see anybody else's pain. We can only see our own, own pain, right? Peter tells us though, in, in chapter 4, 12, uh, man, it's so interesting what he says. It's so comforting because he says, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when this is happening to you, right? Because it's not unusual, Right, so, so the problem is that pain does surprise us. Pain shocks us, right? It's, it's like when you stub your toe, you don't just stub your toe and go, huh, well, that was interesting. You, I mean, you literally, you're hopping and you're, I shouldn't even be doing that. And you're, you're doing all these things, you know, you're like, oh my gosh, I feel like somebody just cut my leg off. It's like, oh, you stubbed your toe, you know? But it's shocking, it surprised you. Pain is just a, it's a surprise. It's a shock in our, in our lives, right? We remember the story of Abraham when God asked him to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. And we think, okay, so what we learn from that story is that God asks us to do things and he allows us to go through things in order to test our faith. And he did that with Abraham. I mean, can you even just imagine the conflicted thoughts this would bring up in your mind if God asked you to? It's unfathomable, right? It's unfathomable. Um, you would be like, did I, did I just hear this guy right? Did he just, he's, he's at, 
He told, so Abraham has this story, right, where he's praying to the Lord, he's waiting on the Lord to give him a son, because the Lord said, hey, your generations are going to be as, you know, as many as the stars in the sky, and he goes, that's great, except I ain't got a kid, right? And God finally gives him a kid, and then says, hey, by the way, um, it's time for you to go up the mountain um, and, and offer a sacrifice to me, I want Isaac to be the sacrifice. I mean, it's just, it's preposterous, if you allow yourself to think of what might be going through this brother's head. Of course, we know that God didn't have Abraham slaughter his son, but because Abraham was willing to obey God, he, he said this, now I know that you fear me, seeing you've not withheld your son, your only son from me. So when we read in the book of Hebrews, we understand, hey, Abraham was tested. Abraham was tested because he had faith in God, because he obeyed God, it was counted to him as righteousness, but he was, he was tested. And those tests can feel severe. Right? They can feel severe. And look, by nature, let's talk about what a test is. A test is something that it, it pushes us, and it pushes us beyond what we're able to handle so that we grow. So when you're tested, you're being pushed beyond what you can handle in order to grow in mental intelligence, to grow in physical strength, to grow in emotional fortitude, all these different things. So we, we take tests all the time, right? We, if, you're, if you're a student here, if you're young, you take tests at school to evaluate your, your level of knowledge, right? If you're an athlete, you're testing yourself or you're being tested by a coach, right? If you're a runner, you're, you're running additional miles to test your endurance. And here's the thing, we just, we rarely enjoy testing. We rarely enjoy things like this, but we know we can grow in those areas. We can't grow in those areas without the necessary testing. So when I was growing up, my parent, when I was uh, seven or eight years old, my parents bought us a piano. I mean, I wanted a piano. Um, I, prob I may have preferred a bicycle, but I got a piano. And uh, we started taking lessons and I took lessons and I took lessons for years and years. And look, I learned how to play the piano, right? I don't ever remember a day that we had, I don't ever remember a day that I woke up in the morning and just said, hey mom, you know, before I go out and play, I'd love to practice today for about two hours. You know, I'm super pumped to be able to devote my time uh, to sitting on that piano and going through my scales, right? Um, I just never, it just wasn't enjoyable, but I did it. And I actually became proficient enough to be able to play Mary Had a Little Lamb, right? I was, I was able to get proficient enough because I was tested, because my skill level was tested and improved because of the testing. Paul goes so far as to compare the Christian life to a marathon, right, where runners race and they, they race to win the prize. And if you're a runner, you know that's why you're doing all this ridiculous training for these marathons, right? You train your body to achieve that end goal. So that's why when we experience pain or testing or trials or suffering or hardships, in what we might call the marathon of life, the writer of Proverbs here is telling us to make sure we guard against some attitudes that will kind of surface in us. Number one would be anger. He says, don't despise the Lord's discipline. The other one would be despair. He says, don't be weary of his reproof. Be careful to not fall into anger or to fall into despair because it, isn't it our, our, our natural inclination to, to fall into one of those things when we're being confronted with pain, when we're being tested, either we get just angry, right? Why is this happening to me? I don't deserve this. Or we get into, into uh, despair, which is, I must deserve this. I must have done something um, that the Lord is bearing down on me like this. We do things like, we ask God why, which by the way is okay. 
God, why? Why are you making me endure this? I don't, I don't care about my sanctification, God. God, like, I don't care about the genuineness of my faith. I care about my health. I care about the life of my sick child. I care about the struggles of my dear friend, right? I care about the welfare of my, you know, aging parents. I care about my loss of income. I care about finding a way to provide for my family. And yet, when we read the words of Peter, he brings us, he brings us from earth, right? All these thoughts, good thoughts, right? They're not bad thoughts, but he kind of brings us from the earthiness of those thoughts kind of into the heavenly realm by reminding us of this, that our faith is precious to the Lord. Your faith is precious to the Lord. So the very things that are testing your faith, it's because of the fact and a beautiful fact that your faith is precious to God, right? Your faith is precious. How precious? Well, precious enough that he gives us strength to endure what feels like the most punishing events of our lives while assuring us that he loves us the whole time. Notice how verse 11 begins. It's a father writing to his son. He says, my son. So this is not someone that's coming out against somebody. This is not somebody who wants to see somebody suffer just for the sake of it. He's saying this is for your good, right? And that's how we square some of these things. That's how we accept that without becoming raging with anger or lost in a fog of hopelessness and despair. That's why we stubbornly embrace the fatherly love of God. Let's turn to Hebrews. You're going to make a, a right and go all the way to the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 12. <clears throat> Look what the, the writer of Hebrews tells us about this. Hebrews 12. You can keep getting there. I'm going to start reading for the sake of time. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? You can add daughters to that too. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. This is just a different rendering of the passage that we're actually reading this morning. And then he says in verse 7, it is for discipline, listen, that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees. He goes on to encourage. So we learn here that Wisdom for us here, it leads us to fatherly love when the Lord is testing us. When there is something going on in your life, going on in your life that you would not prefer, that you even don't understand, the tendency for us is to focus on the testing. And really, what uh, the writer of this proverb is saying is, hey, focus on my fatherly love. Focus on the motivation behind me doing what I'm doing for you because it is for your good. 
The second thing that we want to look at uh, this morning, how wisdom helps us in times of pain, is that wisdom calls us to faithfully wait. Oh, man. Waiting is one of my favorite things in the world. I'm kidding. I'm like the worst when it comes to waiting. I'm very impatient. There is a miraculous work the Lord does in his people, to all of you, if you're his people. He births a desire in your heart to be holy like Jesus. Now, that desire is not like right here all the time, but he does give you a desire. One of the evidences of somebody who is a saved person is that they want to grow in holiness. They want to be more like Jesus, even as they're messing things up all the time, right? There is that heart there that is growing in that. Now, again, the intensity of that desire, it, it, it grows over time. Sometimes it even ebbs and flows in different seasons of life. But that desire to be holy allows Christians to wait with patience in times of testing and discipline and pain. Waiting does this thing where it transforms our view of life and of God, if we allow it to. Instead of seeing our lives through the lens of, of, of this, of, of saying things like, man, I just can't get a break. You know, and it feels like that sometimes. But instead of, instead of just very simply seeing our lives through that lens, man, just nothing good's ever happened to me. I can't catch a break, right? We are instead curious. We're curious as to what the Lord is breaking down in us for our sanctification and spiritual maturity. So instead of just saying, man, I can't catch a break, man, why does life, why is, you know, why is life bearing down on me? What's going on? I don't deserve this. The Christian stands back in his growing or her growing maturity and he says, huh, well, that's interesting that I'm facing this. I wonder what the Lord is up to. Have you ever asked that? I wonder what God is up to right now through these things. And that's what waiting gives us the opportunity to do. And this changes how we, how we interpret the pain that we experience in our life. We don't see pain as pleasant. That's not what the scripture is asking you to do. We don't see pain as pleasant. What we do is we stop seeing it as having no purpose. So yeah, don't, you know, don't, don't get weird. Nobody's going to see pain as pleasant. But you stop seeing it as having no purpose. And that's called spiritual maturity. That's what happens to us. The part of the verse that says, whom he loves, in verse 12, is pretty important for us here. Because what can happen in our pain is that it moves us to think all kinds of things about God that are untrue because we shift our focus from what is true about God. And pain can do that. Pain has a tendency to make us all about our pain. But when something is painful, listen, it doesn't mean that true things become false things. Our pain can exaggerate our reality by turning God into sometimes in our minds this sort of masochistic uh, monster, right? Um, here's a small example of that. You know, we, my, my wife and I have been experiencing this never-ending cold. Um, and, you know, when you're experiencing something like a cold, um, your throat hurts, your nose is running, you have a bad cough, you have to walk out in the, right as, as the worship service is starting, so that you can go upstairs and cough for 25 minutes straight and drink hot tea so that maybe you can come back here and preach a sermon. That's what just happened to me. Um, again, not the end of the world, right? Not pleasant. Um, but at the same time, um, it doesn't mean that everything else in my life is coming apart at the seams, right? 
Most of the things in your life are still working. But when we're in pain, we tend to exaggerate the truth of our life. And most importantly, the truth of who God is and his love for us, which is why one of the best ways to understand God's love here is understanding it and thinking of it through the lens of a parent-child relationship. Even though I I might argue um, that it goes way beyond that in ways that we can't even grasp. But we have a model here, right? So if you're a parent, or let's just say if you're an uncle or an aunt, um, you know that there's nothing in the world you want more than your child's well-being. I mean, that's pretty unarguable for the most part, right? Nobody is more committed to a child's best life after God uh, than his or her parents or family members. Now, that's a general rule. Obviously, there's plenty of parents, family members that this cannot apply to, right? Um, So we got to give space for that. In a general sense, a parent is committed to their child's maturity like no other person in the world. They see their job as preparing their child to become a functioning and contributing adult in the world. That's one of the baselines, one of the baselines, right, for raising a kid. So when your child does something wrong, you use discipline as a way to teach them that this is not the path to flourishing in the world, right? I mean, it's just so, so, so basic. I don't know why it's so hard. It is. But that's kind of the, that's the basic foundation of it. Parents also do other parenting things, right? Like they let their child fail in order to teach them resilience, in order to teach them Humility, right? They make sure that they don't clean up every mess their child makes so that they, they teach them some level of responsibility, right? They have them contribute to the, the running of the household through doing chores and other things so that they learn how to develop skills that are going to help them when they're uh, adults, right? They don't give everything that their kid asks for the minute they ask for them. They, they teach them this thing called delayed gratification, right? Because they want their kid to, to develop patience, And not just think that when they snap their fingers, they're entitled to receive everything. I promise this is not a parenting seminar right now, right? I'm just saying these are some of the things that we do. And we don't do a great job at some of them. We don't do a great job at them all the time. But those are some baseline things that we do for our kids. Um, And again, these are all activities that a child will likely not enjoy. But it's important for their development as human beings and their maturation into adulthood. Ain't none of y'all are going to disagree with any of that, right? A kid can receive these things as acts done against them even. And they do because they're crazy, right? Um, except for the kids in this audience today, right? But that's because, that's because they don't know how to acknowledge or understand the motivation behind them, right? They're, they're not thinking of the heart of the dad. They're not thinking of the heart of the mom. They're just only seeing what's being done to them or what's being asked of them. So the words love and delight are used to show that the motivation behind discipline and reproof is a parental heart that, listen, is more invested in the person, in the child than even the child itself, right? Isn't that a great thing to remember about God? God is more invested in your well-being than you can possibly imagine. You think you know what's good and right for you, and sometimes you do. But you probably have part of the story, right? Because none of you are willingly going to go after times of testing, times of pain, seasons of suffering, right? Here's what is encouraging about that when we apply it to our relationship with our Heavenly Father. Listen, if human sinful parents are invested in their children enough to take steps 
toward their maturity, motivated by an imperfect love and an imperfect delight. How much more so our Heavenly Father, whose love and delight comes from my holy, perfected nature? How much more so? How much more so? In other words, even though our parents get it wrong, and I, I mean, with the exception of everybody in the room, and their motivations are not always pure, Proverbs gives us this illustration to show us that God's fatherly heart behind our pain is a heart that never gets it wrong because his motivations are altogether perfect and holy. Imagine that. Imagine the way you'll look today at some of the stuff, some of the junk that's going on in your life. How will that change how you interpret those things? And if all that's true, it, it means that we can wait on the Lord even through our testing and our discipline and our pain because we know that he has a purpose behind it. And listen, the purpose is not just to whip you into shape like some boot camp sergeant, right? But it's actually to shape you more deeply into the image of Jesus Christ. We learn about that in passages like Romans 8, right? When, uh, you know, let me turn to Romans 8, chapter 24. Let's just do it. We're already going long. How about a little longer, you know? Chapter 8, verse 24, um, it says, you're going to see me some glasses here pretty soon. Um, it says, for in this hope you were saved. It talks about hope. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, listen what he says. We wait for it with what? Patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches our hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And then there's this famous passage, 828, and we know that those, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Well, again, we are constantly redefining what working together for our good means because it's just different. It's how different than we'd write up and type out the instructions. It just is, right? It just is. But we also understand who the one is that is doing this testing and this refining. So there's wisdom in waiting if we choose to be comforted by the character of God and believe that he is who his word says he is. And here's what's hard, bringing it all the way back to the beginning. Waiting is mysterious. Waiting is mysterious. We don't know how long we're going to have to endure through pain. We don't know how long we're going to have to endure through physical things, emotional things, relational things. We think about the suffering of Job. Remember the book of Job? When in an afternoon, his children are taken from him, his property is destroyed. God didn't clear it all up in an afternoon. There is a mystery to pain in that it strikes when we least expect it and it can linger for a long time. So it's a serious thing to be patient while we wait and see the fatherly love of God in the midst of all of it. It's a serious thing to remember the suffering of Jesus in our pain and remember that his suffering is why someday there will be no more suffering. I can keep talking, but Paul Tripp expressed it better when, when he said this. In your most brilliant moments, you will still be left with mystery in your life. Sometimes, even painful mystery. 
We all face things that appear to make little sense and don't seem to serve any good purpose. So rest is never found in the quest to understand it all, he says. No, rest is found in trusting the one who understands it all and rules over it all for his glory and for our good. So scripture over and over and over again is filled with women and filled with men who are going through stuff. They feel lost in the testing. They feel lost in the suffering. It's mysterious. They don't know how to explain the why. And what we see in every page of scripture is drawing us back to the fatherly love of God, not so that we can understand the circumstance better, so that we can understand the one who rules over every circumstance. That's the focus. Psalm 62, five, for God alone, O my soul, wait in silence for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory my mighty rock, my refuge is God. So our practical prayer this morning is, Lord, let wisdom lead me to your love, your fatherly love, and, and let it help me answer wisdom's call to faithfully wait. If God removed all the suffering from our life in this life, he wouldn't have allowed his son to come and suffer for us. There's a purpose, there's a reason for a fatherly God who loves us to the unfathomable degree that he does, and yet he allows us to be tested for our good and for his glory. We can hope in that, we can trust him in that, and you know what, when we can't, you look around, you have all these people to remind you and to help you and to walk you through those situations to disciple you through those situations and say, hey, let's sit in this. Let's think through this. Let's pray through this. Let's walk through this slowly together. That's what you have when you have God and you are a member of his church. Amen? Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for these wise words. They're so hard for us, Lord. You know that. But we like to acknowledge that. We like to acknowledge that our, we have a human relationship with these words that are uh, divine in nature, but they're hard for us. And yet we believe they're true, even if sometimes pain tells us a different story. So Lord, I wanna specifically um, pray for those who are in very uh, just severe moments or seasons of testing right now, where it just feels like it's curveball after curveball um, Lord, I pray for the hearts of those who are going through these things, physical suffering, maybe some mental anguish, maybe some things that are just hard for them to get over, some wounds and some hurts, and maybe things even far more damaging than that. Lord, they're all held, they're all held close to your heart in your good hands. I pray that we would see that, we would feel that, we would believe that. And I pray that we would help our, our, just our neighbors, our, our friends here at the church, Lord, that we have covenanted with as church members. I, I pray that we would be willing to step in boldly, 
bravely and say, hey, are, are you doing okay? Is there anything I can listen for? Is there anything I can walk with through you? And Lord, we just, we pray for that, Lord. Um, you've given us the church and you've given us the church so that we see uh, the comfort and the closeness of Christ more clearly. So Lord, would you do that work in us? Lord, would you uh, equip us? Would you not let this pain uh, become our identity? But you'd allow us, Lord, to grow in wisdom through it, Lord, as we look and we are led towards your fatherly love, as we wait um, in faithfulness, Lord, as you teach us all these things. Thank you for being good to us, uh, even in our testing. Um, you're a good father, and we, um, we thank you for that. We pray that you would continue to show yourself to us as that in Jesus' name. Amen.